This morning we turn in God's holy word to Psalm 49. Psalm 49, hear this all ye people, give ear all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable, I will open my dark saying upon the harp, Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever." that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dieth he shall carry nothing away, his glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. In the light of that psalm and considering also other portions of Scripture, We give our attention this morning to the instruction found in our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 5, questions and answers 12 through 15. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment? and be again received into favor? God will have his justice satisfied, and therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? 
by no means, but on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed, and further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is also very God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning in our consideration of Lord's Day 5, we find the Catechism leading us to the second of three things necessary for us to know that we enjoying our only comfort in life and death might live and die happily. The first thing you remember that we must know is the greatness of our sins and miseries. Three Lord's Days confronted us with that biblical reality as we were called to stand before the holiness of God. Three Lord's Days compelled us to stand before the mirror of God's holy word and to look at ourselves as we appear by nature without being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And the reality was painful and ought to give us a heart for the salvation of those who have not yet seen the marvelous light of the gospel. Because to live apart from God is death, with all its turmoil and despair. Last week in Lord's Day 4, the teaching method of the Catechism was to get us to see the foolishness of any attempt to escape the justice of God. We asked whether God is just in demanding of us that which we cannot perform. And with the help of a couple examples, we immediately understood that God, having created us perfect and capable of living to his glory with all the gifts he had given us, leaves us without excuse. When we willfully disobeyed and cast away all those gifts, we stand accountable for what we have done and still responsible for the consequences of failing to perform our duties before God, the God who created us, that we might serve and glorify him. Then we asked whether God might just let go our punishment, overlook our sin. And we saw that God, being perfectly holy and just, must do exactly what he said he would do. Cursed is everyone that continueth not 
in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And the final question, therefore, was a plea for mercy, for mercy apart from justice. Can't God just show mercy to us? But again, we were humbled by the biblical truth that God's attributes are perfectly one in him. With him, mercy apart from justice is impossible. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. With relief, then, we come to the second part of the Catechism, longing to see the beauty of, the, of our Savior and the wonder of God's grace in saving such miserable sinners as we. We should not overlook the fact that this second part of the Catechism is the longest of the three parts, which also shows that the approach of the Catechism with its focus on Christ, his identity and his works, is the approach of the Bible's revelation. In the Bible, everything points to Christ. No matter where you open your Bible, Christ is revealed. If you have not yet seen him in any given passage, you've not yet understood the teaching of that passage. The whole Old Testament law, as Galatians 3 verse 24 tells us, was the schoolmaster to bring God's people to Christ. Christ and his blood is the scarlet thread that runs throughout the scriptures. But as we see in Lord's A4, we don't just speak about God's justice and then ignore it. We don't talk about God's justice and then proceed to his mercy and love apart from or separate from his justice. Rather, it's from the viewpoint of justice that we are led to see our Savior. And so it is too in Psalm 49. God's justice must be satisfied in order that we might be saved and received into God's favor. And to be received into God's favor is reconciliation. The very heart of the gospel and the purpose of God's sovereign election of his people in Christ. And one other thing I'd call to your attention in my introduction is when the question is asked, is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? There's a desire to be received into God's favor, isn't there? And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? So we're approaching this from the viewpoint of those in whom the Spirit is already at work. 
We have seen uh, the greatness of our misery and we're crying out for the living God. Crying out to be restored to his favor, to be reconciled unto him. So we consider this morning sinners saved by a Savior's satisfaction. Sinners saved by a Savior's satisfaction. So we notice, first of all, the satisfaction demanded. Secondly, the human incapability. And finally, the Savior necessary. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? God will have his justice satisfied. And therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. The primary concept before which we stand this morning is that of satisfaction. And it's interesting that The term satisfaction is found in our English translation of the Bible only twice. Both in Numbers 35 and the one reference right after the other. Numbers 35 verse 31 reads, Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And then follows verse 32. And ye shall take no satisfaction for him that is fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land, Until the death of the priest. Those are the only two instances in the Bible where you find the term satisfaction used, neither of which speaks to the issue before us this morning. But in both those cases, you find the idea is that of a ransom price. And the Hebrew term is used in a handful of other places in the Old Testament where it is translated by the word ransom. And then you immediately understand that the concept of satisfaction is an important concept and a thoroughly biblical concept even if the word satisfaction is not used to express that concept. In Psalm 49, the passage which we read this morning, we saw the idea expressed in verses 6 through 9. It's addressed negatively, showing the folly of those who trust in riches and do not put their trust in God. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves In the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. And then let me omit that parenthetical statement for a moment. 
nor give to God a ransom for him that he should still live forever and not see corruption. Then the, parallel st- st- the parenthetical statement in verse 8 is, for the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. Implied is the truth that if a man should live forever and not see corruption, if he would have life everlasting and not perish, his soul has to be redeemed. A redemption that can only come by a ransom being paid for him. However, that ransom must be an exorbitant price because the redemption of that soul is precious. Did you notice that? More precious than all the wealth any man might ever accumulate. The multitude of their riches cannot pay the ransom price necessary for the redemption of a single soul. Further implied there in this necessary ransom is that there is a price which must be paid, a price which must be completely satisfied, paid in full. Satisfaction here implies that we are under obligation to another. And you know we're talking about our obligation to God, our Creator. And you know the obligation. He has required of us obedience. Obedience exercised in love for Him. Perfect love. We are to love Him with all our heart and soul and mind. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, we are to love him with everything we are and everything we do. We are to be lovers of God. Everything we think, everything we desire, everything we do, everything we say is to be done out of that love for God. And we have failed our obligation. Failed miserably. That leaves us in debt. We have seen before that sin is debt. And sin debt is a debt unlike any other. It wasn't that long ago, probably in connection with the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, that I called attention to the parable that Jesus set forth in the last part of Matthew 18. And we saw that during that period of history, and that continued for centuries, when a man was in debt and failed to pay, he was either sold together with his household, to be basically to be the slave of another, or he was placed into debtor's prison. It was expected that that debt be paid one way or another. To declare bankruptcy to escape the debt was not an option. 
But the debt of sin is such that the penalty for failing that obligation is death. The death penalty. And the debt we have incurred is not just the debt incurred by the guilt of Adam and our relationship to him who fell into sin, but because God's demand doesn't change, every time we sin, we increase our debt. That debt must be paid. Paid in full. Satisfaction is one of those absolute terms. It's either satisfaction has been made, the debt has been paid in full, and then there's reconciliation, or it hasn't been made, and there's no hope for reconciliation. It's either or. God will have his justice satisfied. That means that the punishment for sin must be equal to the offense against God's eternal glory and majesty. You realize, don't you, the glory of God is infinite? What is it then that will satisfy God's justice and pay the debt for our sin? Offense against infinite glory? means infinite wrath. But the bearing of that wrath itself will not satisfy. Those who are cast into hell will bear God's wrath into all eternity, but they will never satisfy God's justice so as to pay that debt. To pay the debt must involve not only the bearing of God's infinite wrath for our infinite offense against God, but to do so in perfect obedience to God. His demand, love me, never ceases. And the response must be, I delight to do thy will, O my God. For every single sin, there must not only be the bearing of that wrath, but there must be the bearing of that wrath in love for God. Love for God must be the response, even while bearing that infinite wrath. Scripture clearly affirms what the Catechism teaches when it goes on to reveal the human incapability of making satisfaction for sin. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. In Adam, we'd already accumulated this debt. And because the debt was incurred as an infinite offense against the infinitely holy and majestic God, it's already a debt beyond our capability to pay. We can never atone for a past sin, not a single one. When our calling is to love the Lord our God, 
with our whole being in every moment of our existence, then we are left with no time to make up for the sins of the past. Furthermore, Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 10, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all these things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done that which was our duty to do. So we can earn nothing. We have nothing to apply toward that debt. But in addition... Because the debt is the result of sin, we only daily increase our debt. Psalm 49 puts it in these terms, verses 12 and 13, after pointing out how people stand before death and still live as if there's no tomorrow. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly. Yet their posterity approve their sayings. That is, their children live the same way and carry on the same foolish behavior. They live without regard to God as if he doesn't even exist. And their own life, as if their own lives in their own little world will just go on. And again, we see how our lives express the reality of this. Every sinful thought, every sinful desire, Every sinful word spoken, every sinful act, only adds to that debt which we are constantly increasing. Every failure to love God as we ought increases that debt. We can tell God we're sorry and mean it from the heart. But that does not take away from the fountain of sin that arises from our sinful flesh in other forms than that of the sin we may have just committed. We have to humbly acknowledge that we are incapable of doing what is necessary to satisfy God's justice and therefore the way to reconciliation is closed if it is to be a matter of our doing. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? Well, someone who has a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures might ask, wasn't that the case in the Old Testament? Wasn't the satisfaction of God's justice achieved in, in the sacrifices that he required of his people with all that shedding of blood? 
The answer is no. No. Those bloody sacrifices foreshadowed the one who alone could offer the sacrifice that would save, that of his own body. As the inspired writer to the Hebrews makes abundantly clear, and God also made that clear in Psalm 50, for example, when he reprimanded reprimanded his people for thinking that he would be satisfied by their offerings. They came to him acting as if he would be satisfied by their giving to him what was already his. And he said in Psalm 50, verses 9 through 15, I will take no bullock out of thine house, nor he goat out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Man incurred the debt. Man must pay the price. It's as simple as that. No beast of the field, no angel, no creature other than man must pay that price. But then we also have to understand no mere creature can pay that price. So steep it is. We saw in Psalm 49 that the ransom is a far higher cost than the most wealthy individual in the world could possibly pay. The Catechism's reference to a mere creature is intentional. For the ransom price to be paid, there will have to be a substitute. We can't pay it. No sacrificial beast can cover that price. No angel, not even Michael, who is specially mentioned in Daniel 10 as fighting for the cause of God's people, no angel can make satisfaction for that sin. Man must pay but not mere man. For again, the one who makes that satisfaction has to bear the burden of God's wrath against sin and to do so in such a way that he can deliver others from it. The Savior necessary to save sinners such as we is a Savior that only God himself can provide. 
Back to Psalm 49. Did you catch the psalmist's confession in verse 15? Is this confession your own? But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. For he shall receive me. How necessary is that confession? The alternative was set before us in verse 20. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. How horrible. But what is impossible with man is certainly possible with God. And not only possible, but God is the one who accomplishes his purpose perfectly and without fail. Question and answer 15. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. God has prepared for that wonder of our salvation eternally. He ordained his Son to be the head of the body, the church. That Son was the firstborn of every creature, in God's eternal counsel. That's Colossians 1. God appointed his own son, the one in whom all things were created, to take our flesh. Colossians 1, verses 19 through 22, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And if if you should ask, how is this possible? How is it just that a perfectly righteous man, one who is also very God, should make satisfaction in our place, you must remember that Jesus did not die an innocent man. He died as one who took our guilt upon himself. All that debt, he took up himself. Mark 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of God, 
though perfectly righteous, took our guilt and sin and shame upon himself to carry it into the depths of God's infinite wrath. He became the guilty one that he might make satisfaction to God and free us from the bondage that once held us. And sustained by his divine nature, he agonized in the awareness of being forsaken, removed from the enjoyment of God's favor, and with perfect obedience, he paid that necessary ransom that you and I might be received into God's favor again. People of God, let us never take salvation for granted. Let us never embrace the folly that would teach that we can earn God's favor. Let's always look to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, verse 9 In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. But how is it that we might live through him? Here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ was sent to be the propitiation, the payment, the satisfaction for our sin. He who is very man and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, he who is very God, made the satisfaction which alone could and did save us. Do you believe that? That's the only way that you and I can be received again into God's favor. That is the way, God's way, of reconciliation. And reconciliation, let's remember, is not our attempt to reconcile God to us, to win his favor, that reconciliation comes entirely from God, the offended one who receives us again unto himself. That's the gospel. That is the good news. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That's the ministry of reconciliation committed to us and by which God restores us to his favor. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 1, verse 18. 
But the only way possible is that of satisfaction. Perfect satisfaction. Isaiah 1 verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. God provides the mediator and deliverer who alone could pay that price and restore us to his favor. That's the wonder work of God's grace and belonging by faith to that Savior is our only comfort in life and death. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the wonder of Thy grace, remarkable in its revelation to such sinners as we. Blot out our sins in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Continue to assure us by faith in Jesus that Thou art our faithful Father, whom to know is life eternal, and that thou, therefore, who hast reconciled us unto thyself, art also he who is guiding us by thy counsel, afterward to receive us to glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen.